gracious God, you speak. The miracle is you speak. And we pray that we have ears to hear it and eyes to see. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your work among us in this place. Open our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was a couple of years ago. I was at the Comox Rec Center just after drop-in gymnastics for my kids. For my, for my kids. And I ended up chatting with one of the moms who had a two-year-old. I had to have that awkward conversation where somebody asks what I do. I say I'm a pastor. Uh, it always gets weird. <laughs> it can be fun, but weird, initially at least. Or people are too excited, one or the other. Anyway, I don't remember most of the conversation aside from a couple of things. I remember that she wasn't a church person, first of all, and I remember how the conversation was somehow steered to the topic of Sunday school. I did not steer the conversation just naturally went that way. I could have, I guess. You know we have Sunday school. Um, I'm glad you have that, she said, meaning Sunday school. I'm glad you have that. Because faith, she said, faith is all about family. I'm glad you have that because faith is all about family. Faith is all about family. She said, without really going to church, this is how she understood it from the outside. And you can understand why as a culture, especially in the church, we've tended to see faith and family as something that goes hand in hand. For a long time, Christians, often in reaction to changing norms around us in human relationships and understandings of human sexuality, would talk in response about, quote, family values. Think tanks like Focus on the Family, and the Family Research Council would offer and continue to offer ways to raise Christian families to shore up parental relationships, at least some parental relationships, and to bind parents and children closer together, kind of like that old phrase, the family that prays together stays together. We've tended to believe that family and Christianity are synonymous, intertwined things, that faith shores up, even serves family life, that faith is all about family, that somehow they go hand in hand. We tend to think of Christianity as a family-friendly faith, or even family-oriented faith, But if you pay attention to this week's scripture passage, you'll see something a bit different, and something different from the life of Jesus himself. Today's reading focuses on Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, as I said earlier. And this reading not only focuses on Jesus, it focuses on Jesus and his family as well. Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his father. Well, the text just says father, but the Christmas story argues that Joseph is his adoptive step or foster father. So, for all intents and purposes, Joseph is his father. 
In our passage, this family's making their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the holy city, for the season of Passover. In a nutshell, Passover commemorates the deliverance of the Hebrew people from Egypt, as described in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. But not everybody did this. Not everybody made the pilgrimage every year. It'd be hard. Making a pilgrimage to the city would be expensive. It'd be hard work. So the fact that the family makes it every single year shows their dedication, their devotion. Kind of like how Shine and I, when we lived in Calgary, went to the folk festival every single year. It was our religious devotion of sorts at the time. Especially when Chris Christopherson was there. But I digress. Um, Mary and Joseph are pious Jews. If there's a family that prays together and should stay together, it's this family. They certainly pray together, I assume. It doesn't say, of course, I assume. But they don't actually stay together. They end up apart in our story, at least temporarily. When the festival ends, when they're on their way home, Joseph and Mary notice something missing. They notice someone missing. Someone named Jesus. Now, these long roads can be dangerous, rife with thieves and bandits, So before you start accusing Joseph and Mary of child neglect, keep in mind they're traveling as a large group of family and friends. So they probably just assumed Jesus was with trusted family members as part of the big caravan. It kind of reminds me of the movie Home Alone, actually. I mean, the one kid's accidentally counted. It's like, and, and, you know, 15, okay, we've got everybody. Then they're on the road. Jesus! And I'd be lying if I didn't admit the appeal of unloading my children on relatives for a day. But that's just me. At any rate, the families split up. Families split up. The Bible is full of just fun. It's, it's hilarious, believe it or not. At any rate, the family split up and Jesus ends up lost. And soon we discover how the family gets separated. It's not just youthful curiosity that caused Jesus to wander off. It's not that he was kidnapped, slept in, or got lost. Something drew Jesus away. Something sent him the opposite direction from family and home. Something mysterious, something deeper, something more profound. So they retrace their steps back to Jerusalem, back to the tent. They're in the temple. Thank God is Jesus And, of course, he's well-behaved. He's sitting around with the rabbis, the teachers of faith. He's listening, engaging them with questions. And everybody's amazed at his understanding. I mean, Jesus shows huge potential here. He's not actually of the age where he would have been taught yet, but he already shows huge potential. Mary gives that well-known parental mix of relief followed by scolding. Why have you treated us like this? She asked Jesus. Your father and I have been out of our minds with worry. You can imagine additional phrases too, like what were you thinking? Don't ever do that again. But in the face of his mother's frustration, Jesus doesn't offer an explanation. He doesn't even offer an apology. Nothing. Why were you searching for me? He asks, as if she should have known. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house. Or as the old King James put it, based on some manuscript variations, if you'd like to know what those are, see me after church. 
The old King James says, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? I love that one. I must be about my father's business. I must be in my father's house, Jesus says, or I must be about my father's business. Either way, it means the same thing. Needless to say, Joseph and Mary, the text says, Joseph and Mary, they don't understand. For all intents and purposes, you can imagine Mary saying, Joseph is your father, Jesus, and we're your family. And of course, they don't realize when Jesus refers to his father, he's talking about God. And he's talking about his relationship with God, this unique relationship God. He's not saying God is male, God is somehow a man, but he's referring to his relationship with God as the Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen by the God of Israel to deliver his people from the political powers that oppress them and the very powers of sin and death that enslave them. This relationship sets the pattern of Jesus' whole life. And it's this relationship with God that draws Jesus away from Mary and Joseph, their friends and kin, on the way home. Because Jesus is about his father's business above all else, beginning to end. We see Christianity following Jesus Christ as something that undergirds, complements, and even serves family life. Here we see in the case of young Jesus, faith doesn't seem to reinforce family at all. In fact, Jesus' faith, his relationship with God, suggests that faith may in fact sometimes disrupt family life. So much for good, old-fashioned family values. We think faith's all about family, but for Jesus, faith comes in a distant second, a distant second to God. And I'm not going to lie, this is pretty Challenging, because at some point or another, our lives revolve around our families, whether they're good families or they're bad families. Whether as children, where our parents hold pride of place in terms of influence and importance, no matter whether they're good or bad either. Or as parents, when we sacrifice, we put other things aside for the good of our children, for better or for worse. It's what comes natural to us to put our children or our parents at the center of our lives. And it's not inherently bad to feel the depth of love, that sort of unconditional love and loyalty for our parents or our children, is to know something about loving the way God loves, unconditionally. But like all good things, family can be twisted. When we put our parents at the center of our world, life becomes about pleasing them, above all other things. Even when pleasing them leads us away from what is right and good. When we put our children at the center of our world, they become our pet projects. Their success is our success. And when they inevitably grow apart from us or fall short of our expectations, it can leave us deeply dissatisfied and disappointed. Empty sometimes. Though it comes from a good place, 
this rarely leads us to a good place. Rarely leads us to a good place. But Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus shows both families and children a third way, a third option. Jesus is driven primarily by his relationship with the one who he calls Father. But the relationship isn't just vertical between God and Jesus. Jesus represents our full humanity, what it means to be who we are created to be. And we discover our full humanity and our individual destinies when God is placed at the center of our lives. St. Augustine once said, love God first and do as you please. With the sense that love of God permeates our entire lives when it's put at the center. And everything else, every other relationship, including children and parents, are found revolving in the same orbit. It means that as children, no matter our age, because we are all children of somebody, It means we can no longer measure our lives exclusively by how we please or displease our parents or the important people in our lives or anybody at all, really. Rather, our life's purpose is, as our scripture passage neatly puts it, to grow in wisdom and in divine and human favor. To become more like Jesus, and like Jesus, even at an early age, to set our hearts towards God in all things, trusting that everything else will fall into its appropriate place. To be about our Father's business. I told you I love that. About our Father's business. Hearts flowing with mercy, compassion, and sacrificial self-giving love. That's what it's like for children, for all of us, really. But it also means that as parents, for those of us who are parents, whatever age, our children are not our pet projects. Simply because our children are not our own. Ultimately, they're not our own. Because Jesus is our brother, we are all children of the same divine parent. As parents, our vocation, our purpose is to have our lives witness to the love, power, and presence of God in the world, but especially to our children. Parenthood itself is our father's business. And that business is to, like Mary and Joseph, help our children find the answer to to their spiritual hunger and to find their destiny with God at the center of of all things, to discover their place in life, even if it means losing our own place in theirs. Faith isn't all about family, at least not family as we normally understand it. Faith is about what we put first, about what drives us in everything we do. The word worship means to give worth to something. Faith is about what we put first, what drives us, 
in everything we do. When we come here, we come here to put God, Christ, the Holy Spirit at the center of our lives because it's so easy to forget. And the promise of the gospel, the promise of our brother Jesus is that if we seek first the kingdom, we'll find our true identities as children of God. And that when we're about our father's business, we'll find the life we've always been waiting for and everything else will fall into place. So may God give each of you and each of us the strength and wisdom to trust this promise. Parents, children, brothers, sisters, all. For this, thanks be to God. Amen.